you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to a very special bonus episode. In celebration of Halloween, and with the help of two of my sister podcasts from Straight Up Strange Productions, you're in store for a unique show tonight, tying together each of our three very different podcasts and styles to cover one overlapping and relatively dark topic, the phenomenon of crimes committed while sleepwalking. And not just any crimes, but heinous, sometimes fatal ones. First up is a fictionalized storytelling by Jennifer of Haunted Happenstance, and it's followed by some historical true crime facts by yours truly. Then we'll have a factual spin from the sleep, dream, and science side from Miranda of All Things Dreams. So, without further ado, let's begin the show. Hey there, I'm Jennifer, and I host Haunted Happenstance a quirky and creepy audio drama set in a historic residence in Boston, Massachusetts. There, along with my neighbors, I chronicle the strange and spooky events surrounding us that seem too eerie to be just coincidence and can only be explained as haunted happenstance. Sleeping had never been my strongest skill. Since I was a young child, It just didn't come exceedingly naturally to me. I could fall asleep, sometimes too easily, and waking up in the morning wasn't that bad. But the time between those two? Well, that was complicated. There is hardly a member of my family who doesn't have a silly, strange, or essentially unbelievable story about something I've done or said while sleepwalking. And once I moved out of my childhood home and into a dorm for college, well, I collected more witnesses and, respectively, even more stories of similar escapades. By some miracle, none of them involved me being somewhere too public and too unclothed, and none required the intervention of any official authority. At least not yet, and thankfully. And as one could imagine, The occurrences were an absolute favorite for others to share at my expense at each and every family get-together, and so I wasn't exactly eager to see which ones would be pulled out of the nostalgic vault when I brought my boyfriend to go meet my parents and two siblings that upcoming weekend. Packing up the last of our few overnight bags into the trunk of my car, He asked me again if he needed to know anything particular before spending the next 48 hours with my close-knit, small-town family. Babe, stop it. It's going to be fine. They'll love you. You'll love them. This is going to be easy, I promise. The hardest part will be sleeping in a full-sized bed instead of the king we're used to at home, but I think we'll survive even that. I kissed him on the bridge of his adorably freckled nose, and we were on our way. Three and a half hours due west from the city to the small town of Johnstown, New York, my once upon a time home. The trip passed quickly as we alternated catching up on the backlog of our favorite podcasts, Straight Up Enigmas for him, All Things Dreams for me. And before we knew it, 
we were turning into the gravel driveway that led to 13 Brickloft Drive. My overexcited but completely well-meaning mother was outside waving wildly before we could even step a foot out of the vehicle, and my kind, tough, almost always silent father stood in the doorway behind her, lovingly shaking his head at her theatrical greeting. The rest of my family, two younger sisters, one calico cat, and two beagles, remained thankfully inside, and even more thankfully, the entire charade surrounding our welcome was over in less than five minutes flat, leaving the two of us to lug our bags upstairs and into my former bedroom at the end of our long wooden hall. Only then, as we stood outside that door, did I feel my first tingles of panic. Oh no, I had no idea what awaited us on the other side of this threshold. I'd abandoned this room nearly a decade ago, and even by my standards at the time, it was borderline embarrassing. Your classic collection of young adult novels, glossy Seventeen magazines, posters and photos of long-ago pop culture stardom, and probably no fewer than eleven stuffed animal giraffes. I took a deep breath and got ready to swing open the door. Eric had stuck with me even after I admitted to watching Bigfoot documentaries whenever he wasn't home, so how bad could this be? The door opened to reveal an impeccably clean, well-organized, adult-appropriate guest bedroom. And I said a tiny prayer to the interior decorating gods that my mother secretly watched HGTV whenever my father wasn't home. Setting down our bags and preparing to head back downstairs for dinner with the fam, my eyes fell on one familiar furry memento. It appeared that one giraffe had been spared and now sat on the nightstand alongside the bed. I snickered when I saw it, though. Murray the giraffe brought back feelings as warm and fuzzy as he was. As the late evening began to fall quickly into night, dinner and the associated chit-chat were sped up more than they would have been otherwise, but it was a good time. Everyone had enjoyed getting to know Eric, and they'd nearly managed to get entirely through dessert without mentioning any of my past sleepy time incidents. Nearly turned out not to be close enough, however. Hey, Eric, you've known my sister for a while, right? She's pretty cool, I'll admit it. I always looked up to her, especially since I kind of had to. When we were younger, I'd wake up a few times a month to find her just standing over me, staring down at me, telling me stories in the middle of the night. Of course, she had no idea she was, and she didn't remember it when I'd tell her the next morning. But trust me, that's not the kind of thing a six-year-old forgets. I've been trying to, and I still can't. The table all joined in on the laughs, and then others shared a few tales of their own. Throughout it all, Eric was such a good sport. He always was. He even regaled them with his own favorite, what Allie did when she was sleeping story. How, a month after he'd moved in, he had been woken up and terrified by a high-pitched whining sound really close to him. And only after flipping on the lights did he find it was me, vacuuming the bed linens, while he slept underneath them. Not my finest moment, but also, 
I think he might have taken some liberties in his retelling, but I allowed it. That seemed like as good an opportunity as any to turn in for the night, and it seemed like the sentiment was shared by the rest of the household as well. Feeling beat from the drive, Eric and I got ready for sleep, chatted a bit about the evening, and both agreed that everything went over well, comfortably even, and all parties really enjoyed the others. Since the whole family had plans to go hiking bright and early, I was only too relieved and ready to slip under the thick quilted bed cover and just let my mind and body rest up. Eric and I shared our good nights, and as he clicked off his bedside light, he jokingly added his sweet dreams to the giraffe, who I quickly reminded him had a name. I chuckled silently and stared off into the darkness of the room, just waiting for my eyes to give in to it. And I knew they had when the dreams trickled in through the blank scene and took center stage. A familiar set opened. It was our townhouse in West Roxbury. Eric and I were sitting in our breakfast nook. He, flipping through his most recent issues of his cooking magazines, while I edited a story I'd been writing. A shadow passed outside our wide bow window, and it catches my eye, but nothing's there when I move my gaze fully to investigate, so I return to my work. No more than a minute later, a faint wooden creaking from behind our galley kitchen is loud enough to catch both of our attentions. And before either of us can react further, someone is in our doorway, in our kitchen, with a gun pointed at us. His face is masked with a plain dark gray scarf, a navy hoodie over his head, and he is screaming at us to get down and be quiet. The words garbled through the thick wool stretched over his lips. I don't know if Eric hears what he says or just doesn't care, but I watch as he quickly lunges at the intruder and attempts to knock him down and the gun out of his hand. My mind has raced from being taken off guard and frightened to panic-stricken and horrified, and without even thinking, I run after the two of them as well, grabbing a bread knife left on our counter from breakfast. I have no plan. I don't even know what to do. I can barely tell who is who as the two have fallen to the ground, each trying to wrestle into a position, forcing the other one beneath them. I am screaming and kicking at the man who dared enter our house, but I can't see the gun. Each of his hands appear empty, and the weapon can't be seen anywhere on the parquet floor. In a moment when I see that Eric has the upper hand, I yell at him to move, the knife clutched awkwardly in my hand, pointing it downward and hovering over the stranger. And Eric's eyes... His kind green eyes turn to me, and they beg me silently to back away, and I hear his voice in my head, not from his lips, plead, Babe, stop, it's okay, nothing's wrong, stop. And it's then that Eric's face is no longer his. It's the intruder's angry, heated brown eyes piercing through me, the gun back in his hands as Eric lays still on the floor. And I don't need to stop. I don't need to think. I plunge the knife into the top of his shoulder. He doesn't scream. 
He doesn't move. He just stays there, staring at me, his silence mocking my efforts and my fury. Unexpected pressure on my own shoulder startles me, and I half turn to see Eric, my Eric, safe, well, but concerned. And he tells me to wake up, and I do. It's still my Eric, safe, well, and concerned. You okay, doll? Sounded like a pretty horrid dream. I close my eyes and slowly nod as I take as many deep breaths as my lungs will hold. He kisses my forehead and says he'll go get me a glass of cold water and we'll be right back. I offer a weak smile, but a genuine one, and I watch him walk out of the room, his outline stark against the light spilling in from the hallway. I move to wipe a hand across my forehead to move my sticky hair out of my eyes, and as I do, a soft thud is heard by my bedside. I lean over the side of the bed to see the stuffed giraffe laying on the floor, its body torn, stuffing dragged out, its face no longer whole. And as I bend over further to grab it, a much louder, clanging sound echoes out. And I stare, dumbly, at the large bread knife, now also cast on the parquet floor. My breath catches in my throat, and I can't even expel a gasp as I hear Eric return and ask, What the hell, Allie? Where was that? Did you bring that knife from home? While the spine-tingling story you just heard may have been fictional, very real occurrences of strange and violent sleepwalking behaviors do happen. According to the National Sleep Foundation, sleepwalking is a behavior disorder that originates during deep sleep and results in walking or performing other complex behaviors while asleep. It is much more common in children than adults and is more likely to occur if a person is sleep-deprived. Because a sleepwalker typically remains in deep sleep throughout the episode, he or she may be difficult to awaken and will probably not remember the sleepwalking incident. The prevalence of sleepwalking in the general population is estimated to be between 1% and 15%. The onset or persistence of sleepwalking in adulthood is common and is usually not associated with any significant underlying psychiatric or psychological problems. Common triggers for sleepwalking include sleep deprivation, sedative agents including alcohol, illnesses, and certain medications. Sleepwalking usually involves more than just walking during sleep. It is a series of complex behaviors that are carried out while sleeping, the most obvious of which is walking. Symptoms of sleepwalking disorder range from simply sitting up in bed and looking around to walking around the room or house, to leaving the house, and even driving long distances. It is a common misconception that a sleepwalker should not be awakened. In fact, as we'll see in this episode, it can be quite dangerous not to wake a sleepwalker. And while stabbing an innocent childhood toy seems violent, some historical cases of sleepwalking 
have had much more deadly consequences. Hi everyone, I'm Jaden McKell, the host of Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. We discuss ghost stories, historical mysteries, unsolved true crimes, and more. Stay with us as we dive into the terrifying topic of homicidal sleepwalking and one true case in particular that became a real proving ground for the science of sleep and psychology. Nineteenth century, Albert Jackson Terrell lived in Weymouth, Massachusetts with his wife and two children, but he was known to be unfaithful. In 1845, Terrell left his wife to be with his lover, Maria Bickford, a prostitute living in a Boston brothel. Although Terrell and Bickford began living and traveling together using different names, she couldn't seem to let go of her past life or profession, which reportedly angered Terrell. In the early morning of October 27, 1845, Bickford was found dead in her room, her throat slit with a razor so brutally that her head was nearly severed from her body. Someone had also set fire to the building, allegedly in an attempt to destroy any evidence of the crime. The fire awoke the landlord who discovered the body of Bickford and called the police. As several witnesses had seen Terrell entering and leaving the brothel, the police began to search for him, but found that he had left town. He was arrested on December 6th in New Orleans, Louisiana, and returned to Boston for trial. The public was outraged. Not only had Terrell been having an affair, he was also seen on the premises just hours before Bickford's body was found. A bloody razor lay near her body, bits of Terrell's clothing and his cane were at the crime scene, and fires had been set nearby as if to hide evidence of the crime. Terrell was eventually acquitted of arson and murder, but found guilty of adultery. His defense? He had committed the murder and started the fire while sleepwalking, making it the first but not last time in American legal history that this defense was successful in a murder prosecution. While the Albert Terrell case is definitely one of the most notorious, another baffling and more modern case really pushed sleep specialists to study the effect of sleep on the brain. In the early morning of May 24, 1987, 23-year-old Kenneth Parks drove about 20 kilometers, or 12 miles, from Pickering, Ontario to the house of his in-laws in Scarborough, Ontario. He entered their house with a key they had previously given him, climbed their stairs, and attacked his mother-in-law, Barbara Ann Woods, with a tire iron and then a kitchen knife, stabbing her to death. Parks then turned on his father-in-law, attempting to choke him to death, but the man managed to survive the attack. According to the teenage children living in the house at the time, Parks briefly roamed the house afterwards, making, quote, 
animals' noises. Parks got back in his car and drove straight to a nearby police station, turning himself in and stating, I think I have just killed two people. When he presented himself to the officer on duty at the station's front desk, he was covered in blood and wounded. He had also lacerated both of his hands during the stabbing of his mother-in-law, a point that would prove critical in his defense. Kenneth Parks had recently been fired after he was caught embezzling funds from his employers in an attempt to pay off debts related to a soaring gambling debt. He had already confessed his financial problems to his wife and, on May 20th, he went to his first Gamblers Anonymous meeting. Parks made plans to tell his in-laws about his gambling problems and financial situation on Sunday, May 24th. On the night of May 23rd, he fell asleep in front of the TV while watching an episode of Saturday Night Live. By all accounts, Parks was under a lot of stress, depressed, and suffering from insomnia. He also had a history of sleepwalking behaviors and night terrors. All of these factors, his remorse and confusion about the attacks, his self-inflicted wounds, his personal history, and the stress caused by his gambling and financial problems, combined to make sense of his sleepwalking behaviors, at least to a jury of his peers. Park's only defense was that he was asleep during the entire incident and not aware of what he was doing. Sleep specialists were, of course, extremely skeptical, but after careful investigation, they could find no other explanation. Park's EEG readings were very irregular, even for a parasomniac. He was impressively consistent in his stories for more than seven interviews, despite repeated attempts at trying to lead him astray. The timing of the events fit perfectly with the proposed explanation, and Parks was reported to have a very close relationship with his mother-in-law. She even referred to him as her, quote, gentle giant. The evidence led to a jury acquitting Parks of the murder of his mother-in-law and the attempted murder of his father-in-law. The Supreme Court of Canada upheld the acquittal in the 1992 decision R versus Parks, though some doctors believe Parks should have been found not guilty due to reasons of insanity. Hello folks, Miranda here from All Things Dreams, a podcast dedicated to dream experiences and dream interpretation. Tonight, I'm joined by my husband, Devin, and our little kitty, Walter. But hopefully you won't be hearing too much from him tonight. Why would you say that? <laughs> it's very possible you will hear some meows, but hopefully they will be minimal. Um, we're going to continue with the topic of sleepwalking uh, with a focus on homicidal sleepwalking. The Parks case that Jaden just covered, I found really, really fascinating. And I can't get over that it happened right here in Canada. And I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, Devin, but this city it took place in, Crystal and Mike actually used to live there. And Crystal's my sister. So they lived in the city where this case actually took place. Which Ajax? I, they live in Ajax now, but it, they used to live in Pickering. And it was Pickering where this took place. Gotcha. Or at least where the murderer was living at the time. So anyways, very close to home, making it that much more interesting. So for our section of this episode, we're gonna focus on 
just some facts about sleepwalking and also maybe bust a few myths along the way as well. And this is something that basically I knew nothing about before doing research. I've never had sleepwalking experiences. I don't have people close to me that I've seen sleepwalking before. So anything I know about this is through research and movies and reading articles. So have you ever had a friend that sleepwalked? Um, I might have, like, I think I've had people who've said they've sleepwalked, but I've never seen it firsthand. Have you? Oh yeah. Oh, what was that like? Friends growing up, whole family, the dad and my friend would sleepwalk. I just wake up and they'd be in the kitchen. Nothing shocking, like yeah, not holding yeah. a knife or anything like, like the movie with Hillary Swank in it, but it's, it's unsettling when you, when you can't talk to them. I don't know. One of the myths I hope you, you figure out here is, can you wake up a sleepwalker? Because I was always told not to. So we're going to get into that But today. I did it anyways. <laughs> and they were fine. But then it was weird because they didn't know why they were in the kitchen. So we'll unpack that a little bit more later on when I get into some of the research. Um, but as you mentioned, Devin, the movie with Hilary Swank is a made-for-TV movie that actually focused on the Kenneth Parks case. So I was pretty excited when we came across that doing the research. And I don't know how excited Devin was when we pressed play for this movie. <laughs> but just to give you a little bit of context on this, it was, a, as I mentioned, made-for-TV film. It was released in 1997. The director is John Cosgrove, who also produced some episodes of Unsolved Mysteries and directed a few as well. Can a sleepwalker commit murder? This is the question at the heart of the sleepwalker killing. A suspenseful drama starring Charles Esten, Jeffrey Nordling, and Hilary Swank. After murdering his mother-in-law and seriously hurting his father-in-law, Mark Shaw turns himself in. But while Mark admits to being guilty, he cannot remember actually committing the crime. In his defense, a team of lawyers attempt to prove that while Mark did in fact carry out murder, he was not awake when it happened. And during this movie, the names were changed to protect anonymity. But just so you guys all know, the Mark that Devin was referencing is the one and only Kenneth Parks from the... Who? From the, the Kenneth Parks case. The person who murdered his mother-in-law. So this... Mark Shaw's not his real name. Mark Shaw is not his real name. Well, this review, I, that, was a re I, that was Amy Streb's review on Amazon. She gave this movie five stars. Five. What would, what would you give this movie? Uh, acting wasn't terrible. Two. Two? Two stars. That's more generous than I thought you would give. I will say that I, I actually quite enjoyed it. <laughs> but, but I think it's primarily because it was a case that happened here in Canada and something about sleepwalking murders that's really fascinating. So despite the acting being, you know, it's TV acting and it was... Hey, no Hillary Swank, the cores, Hillary Swank is above television acting. <laughs> Why is she in this? Fair enough. I don't. I think it was one of her very, very early, early, early films. No, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992 was one of her first roles. This is five years after that. And I mean, if she can do Buffy the Vampire Slayer, basically all doors should be open for This is way. after Boys Don't Cry, isn't it? I'm not sure. Well, let's find out. Well, while you're looking at that... I did also want to mention that as I was watching the movie, there were a couple people in it that was really bugging me because I was trying to place what I know them from. One of those people was the father-in-law who was stabbed multiple times by Kenneth, but who did not die. And he was played by Sam Anderson, who is Bernard from the show Lost. 
And then another person I recognized was Charles Esten, who's Deacon Claiborne from the show Nashville, which is probably one that you would not recognize, Devin, because I'm pretty sure you've never watched that show. This is two years before Boys Don't Cry. This is the movie that got her the role in Boys Don't Cry. Well, there you go. Made that up. That's not true. (laughs) Either way, I found it was really interesting. And if you are looking for some more information about this case, I think it wouldn't hurt to check out the movie, recognizing that it is a made-for-TV film. But um, I wanted to get into some of the research that I've done relating to sleepwalking. And first things first, I wanted to distinguish between the two main types of sleepwalking. The first being the common generic form of sleepwalking, so your type one sleepwalking, which is basically happens during the first few hours of your sleep and it's dreamless sleep because it's um, or generally dreamless sleep because it occurs before the REM cycle begins and generally your eyes are open during this phase of the process but if anyone listening now notices that the person's eyes are closed it's probably because they're in the type two of sleepwalking which is actually REM behavior disorder or RBD And in this type of sleepwalking, people are normally acting out parts of their dream and their eyes are normally shut. And with the Parks case, um, in which the person left their house, drove to their in-laws and murdered their mother-in-law, it sounds like it was a type one form of sleepwalking because they described the scenario as him basically falling asleep watching TV going to sleep around 1 a.m., waking up at about, not sorry, not waking up, proceeding to sleepwalk to his in-laws around 3.30 a.m. So that would be consistent with the first form of sleepwalking and would be consistent with the type in which you'd have your eyes open, which would make it a lot more easy to drive. And the next thing I wanted to go into are some sleepwalking facts that I've pulled together and kind of tied them to the Parks case because As I was watching the movie, I was impressed with the amount of information they were kind of linking to research and kind of laying out for the viewers to help them understand the scientific aspects of sleepwalking and how they correlate or don't correlate to the actual case. So one thing I wanted to mention that sleepwalking episodes are typically brief, only lasting a few minutes but they can last up to about 30 minutes or even a bit longer, although sleepwalking episodes generally are less than 10 minutes. This is something that was a bit of a cause for skepticism with the Parks case because the person drove, got to the person's house, parked the car, went in the house, proceeded to murder their mother-in-law and stab their father-in-law and then left the house and was like in their car before they woke up. And did he get away with it? Yes. So what's the law in Canada? Like if it happened again right now? Well, now there's precedent for this type of case being connected with acquittal and a murder. And it was held up by the Supreme Court when it was challenged. So it's, yeah, there's definitely precedent here in Canada. And yeah, it's pretty eerie to think about. And the other thing that's relevant to this case and with sleepwalking facts is that sleepwalking is actually hereditary in many cases. And I think well, you mentioned my friend's dad. Yeah, was I was just going to say. So that checked out with your friend and their dad. And with this Parks fellow, his grandfather was also a sleepwalker. And the grandmother had commented how she would come down and see 
basically her husband um, making breakfast in the middle of the night and like a fairly elaborate breakfast of like bacon and eggs, which I feel is kind of elaborate for something that you'd be doing while you're sleeping. And at first she just found it kind of funny that she's like, oh, look at him go. It's 3 a.m. and make a breakfast in his sleep. But then when she went to try to wake him up, he actually took a swing at her. Um, so there's also a bit of history of some violence while sleepwalking in what about their family. the cooking? You could burn your house? Oh, oh, 100%. Like it's, it, that in and of itself is definitely dangerous. So another thing that popped up is that sleepwalkers often have no memory of what happened, but people who experience RBD, so again, that's the one that happens during REM, are more likely to remember their dreams from when they're sleepwalking. And because of that, they're able to kind of piece together some of the actions that they took and explain them. But in the case of Parks, it wasn't an RBD example. It was an example of your standard sleepwalking that occurs before you're in your dream state. So in his case, he had no memory and his eyes were open. But that all kind of lines up with the type of sleepwalking that he should have been experiencing at the time. So there are connections with Park's actions and that lining up with the type of sleepwalking that he should have been experiencing. But the part that's trickier and makes it a little bit harder to swallow his story is that the actions he was carrying out were not kind of typical regular actions unless he was like a mass murderer and always was driving around killing people and just went into, oh, this is the common thing that I do in my waking life. So I'm just going to casually go around and murder people while I'm sleepwalking. How can you drive a car when you're sleeping? People do it. There's actually, when I was reading, there's a lot of reports of people sleepwalking while driving their car. So that wasn't a huge red flag that he had done that. But what's most common when you're in that type one state of sleepwalking is really to be enacting out behaviors that you repeat on a regular basis during your waking life. So like when you saw your friends or your friend's dad in the kitchen going in the fridge or preparing some food, like that makes a lot of sense because those are habits that they're accustomed to. So they're just kind of drawing upon muscle, basically muscle memory as they're going about those actions. And this freaking guy tried to kill his in-laws? He successfully murdered his mother-in-law. Failed at the father And had attempted murder with the father-in-law. So it's... It Bernard gets, was too strong. Bernard was too strong. <laughs> yes. But when you think about it, it's pretty... I don't know. It comes across as pretty... I don't know. It's skeptical. Or I'm skeptical about it. But in the movie, they played out the scenario in a pretty believable fashion. And... Can you eat? Or do you just yeah, prep you food? Eat. Okay, oh, so question. Eat. You sleepwalk. You drink alcohol. Yeah. Then you yeah. drive a car. Are you under arrest for any of this if you kill someone in that car? Well, considering that this person murdered someone and it got acquitted because he was sleepwalking, I think someone could get acquitted for drunk driving while sleepwalking. I think so that, that there's precedent for that. What if you just were driving and you got caught? I feel like, again, you could get... Reckless driving? <laughs> charges dropped because you're sleepwalking. Man, that feels like... You, like, how, how did they prove it? Well, like, I got pulled over and I was just like... They're like, sir, put the window <laughs> down, and I put the window down, and then they're like, sir, and I go, duh, where am I? And, and they're going to be like, you're bullshitting me. Yeah, like, and in the, movie, in the movie, the cops had that same reaction. The they're movie like, was so boring, I kind of checked out early. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but in the, the cops didn't believe him. It was only in the court of law where the lawyers each put their cases forward, and then they sided with the defense counsel. 
So I'm not saying that anyone can just kind of, oh, I'm sleepwalking and people are going to be like, hey, don't worry about it. Has anybody there'd still tried be that? The, there'd still be the need to go it. through due process. And I don't know if anyone's ever tried that. You should look into Maybe. this. Doesn't seem like a smart thing to try to do, but... No, I don't recommend that. This movie took place in waiting rooms and then... Like, a room that was the cop station, and then a courtroom. That is basically where this movie took place. Yeah, that is 100% accurate. It's a movie of waiting rooms. Yeah. The most... It's just not stimulating in the slightest bit. The most boring set design. I'm not going to argue with that. In my but point, if it... you find this case interesting, I would still recommend watching it. But you mentioned earlier, you had a question around, is it dangerous to wake someone up who's sleepwalking? I don't think it matters. You just don't think it matters. No, this isn't like night terrors. Aren't you not supposed to wake those night terror people up? It's the same rule. The same rule applies for both. Don't wake them up. What? Don't wake them up. That's your gut reaction. Well, that's what I was told not to do with you when you start screaming in the middle of the night. <laughs> and there's a reason why people say don't wake people up when they're sleepwalking or having a night terror. But it's not because of the health of the person who's having a night terror or who's sleepwalking. It's because you're going to swing at me. Yes. It's to protect the person who's not sleepwalking or not having the night terror. Because as I mentioned, for example, with Parks's grandmother, when she went to wake up her husband, when he was cooking breakfast in the kitchen, he went and took a swing at her. He didn't hurt her, but he could have. And so the idea is that if you try to wake someone up who's in that dreamlike state, they might be having I a nightmare. I threw a pillow at him. Like, that's how I woke up my friend when he would do yeah, it. Yeah, that's a pretty safe way to go about it. The pillow's soft. It's not going to hurt him. Or yell at him. It allows you to be distant so you're more protected. So you're. it's fine to wake people up just to be cautious about how you go about doing it. So keep your distance if, if they seem like they might be aggressive. Um, but you can certainly still, like, yell at them to try to get them at their attention, make loud noises. Or in your case, throw a pillow at them. What about heart attacks? Nope. It's a myth that people will have a heart attack if they're awoken from that state. But what most people recommend is just to gently guide people back to their bed. Or throw a pillow at them. <laughs> or, okay. That, again, that wasn't part of my the research findings, but I personally see no issue with Do that. Do animals sleepwalk? I have no idea. Does Walter sleepwalk? I'm, I don't think Walter has ever sleepwalked. That's one of our cats, but... Walt, have you ever... Sleptwalk? Sleptwalk? Sleepwalk? Sleepwalk. Sleepwalked? Sleepwalked. Walter, did you sleepwalk? Have you sleptwalked? He's not answering. He's mad at you. Alrighty, and just to wrap up this episode, I have a couple dream facts. Or I guess more accurately, in this case, it would be sleep facts. So I guess I'll test some of your knowledge, Devin. Oh, Christ. <laughs> what percentage of people... Are prone to sleepwalking. Seven. Seven percent? Wow, you were really quick with that. You were actually kind of close, but sixty-two. <laughs> no. Uh, if you put in if you cut in 17. half your answer, 3. it's 5. almost right on the button. Three point six percent of the population are prone to sleepwalking. So that's based on a study that was conducted at the Stanford University School of Medicine. I wouldn't and trust those people. You wouldn't trust them. Well, the other the other thing that I think is particularly relevant to this episode is what percentage of sleepwalkers do you think have injured themselves? Of the 3.6? Yep. 6. 
Six percent? Six percent of them. Have hurt hurt yeah. themselves? And what percent do you think have hurt other people? Twelve. <laughs> Seven, Twelve. Twelve, double. So the percentages you mentioned are off, but the proportions are pretty much bang on because um, it's about double the percentage of people that hurt other people compared to themselves. So it's twice as likely that you're going to hurt someone else than you're going to hurt what yourself. What were the numbers? 33% or like one third of sleepwalkers um, will generally injure themselves versus 64% um, have injured their sleeping How partners. many have burned their house down? I don't know how many have burned their house down. Seven. I just learned that people are generally more dangerous to others than they are to themselves when they're sleepwalking. So on that unsettling note, I'd just like to say thank you for tuning into this collaborative episode with us, All Things Dreams, and with the amazing podcasters from Haunted Happenstance and Straight Up Enigmas. Good day. Bye.